Um, Heavenly Father, we're um, grateful to be in your house with your people. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for freedom of religion and freedom of speech. Thank you, Lord, freedom of assembly. We can gather together today and worship God as our conscience and our minds and our hearts dictate. Thank you for these things. Help us to not take them for granted. Help us to be mindful that right now, tonight, all over the world in various places, there are Christian ministers, missionaries, and everyday men and women and children calling on the name of Jesus as Lord at their physical, emotional, financial, social peril. Help us to see that. The stories about Christians in the Roman Empire and how they went through such great suffering and persecution, those stories should be supplemented by the fact that right now, while we're living on this planet in other places, people are dying for the cause of Jesus Christ. And that ought to sober us and make this thing urgent about what we're doing, Father, because to say that you are Lord is to engage in a spiritual war. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you will help us to sense that urgency and see that that takes precedence over everything else, including our own physical well-being and health and all of that. We do ask because Jesus said we could. He said, pray this way, give us this day our daily bread. So I do ask you to provide for these families. I ask you to provide for Mount Olive and the churches we're connected to and these pastors and ministers and friends, Lord, and these other places that we're, that, that we're in networked with various ways. We pray, God, for their spirit and their body to prosper, that they would come to know you better, that they would be safe and protected from harm, keep them from the evil one, heal their bodies, Lord, save their households. Purge the household, Lord, of any influence of the enemy. Bring deliverance and peace and, and hope, God, and reconciliation to them. And give us at Mount Olive in particular, Lord, help us to um, have a sense of focus and directiveness and direction about what we're doing um, to organize I think about the book of Acts and how the apostles, these great preachers who walked around with Jesus and had all of this great eyewitness news and information and had these gifts and powers. And yet, despite all of their giftedness, when it came down to it, they, didn't, they failed to see that this widow didn't get distributed food the way that these did. And and there were complaints made. And so they had to get deacons together and organize them and ordain them and anoint and pray for them and put them in charge of that. And the book of Acts shows us an early incipient organization. It requires that, Father. If the, if the ministry's going to go on, we want to be soul winning machines in this place, God. And that means we've got to have vision and we've got to have compassion and we've got to keep the main thing the main thing. And we also have to have some organization. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you'll help Help us and direct our paths that way in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I know at seminary, pastors, they always tell us we, we, sort of, we sort of fall into three big brackets. You know, there's the preaching side of things, the preaching, teaching stuff. 
Then there's the shepherding souls, caring for people, loving them, nurturing them. And then there's the admin stuff. And so some of it can be daunting when you're at seminary and they're like, well, we want you to be the greatest public speaker anyone's ever heard. We also want you to be the most compassionate human being, like our own grandparents for everybody, our neighbors and dogs. And we also want you to be a CEO of the business. It's a lot. I mean, it really is. And the truth is, is that I, by nature, by experience, by, I don't know, enjoyment, uh, you know, these things kind of come more, I don't know how to say it, naturally to me than the admin side. And I had to just plod my way through those courses. And uh, are you kind of saying amen to a little bit? No, no, that's not. Do not have the gift of administration. Okay, all right, there you go. So, so that's, I mean, I, this was like, you know, they were just kicking and screaming. I'm going learning this stuff. And I ended up learning quite a bit. And I'm glad I did. And, and I hope to learn more. But, but the point is, is as, you're, as you see a church or a ministry or a movement in an area beginning to grow, um, you know, the need for the gift of administration becomes really, really, you know, eye-popping. It becomes important to see. So, in the scheme of things, the great scheme of things, if we're going to form people in the, in the way of Jesus Christ to see people spiritually formed through the practice of spiritual disciplines, then we need to know our way around the Scripture. We need to be able to soak in Scripture, and we want that experience to be the most, the, the fullest that it can be. Um, I've all, I, I felt really sad for people who really weren't equipped and didn't know what they were doing at all, and then they really made a college try to read the Bible or whatever, and then they just kind of flounder. You know, they don't have any help. And, and so I think uh, this, is some, this is a great evil that I want to try to, you know, right. I want to make it right the best that I can. So anyhow, what, I give, what I've given you as a handout is really a, a bunch of information about the first uh, verse or the first word of the letter to Philippians. And if you want to go back there from last week, Philippians chapter 1. This is a, this is a letter. We call it in church talk an epistle. But that word is just for us is like a letter. That's what it means. Okay, so for anybody who's keeping score or cares, the word epistolary is, an, is, a, is a kind of a type of literature, a genre. That's your French word for those of you who care. Genre, the epistolary is a type of literature. It's letter writing. And people like Cicero, the great uh, Roman um, Rhetorician or speaker, public speaker, he made this famous. He wrote a book on letters and how to write letters and, and how to do it right. There was a format and all of that in the, in the ancient world. And so epistolary is something that the New Testament is full of. Uh, we have a whole bunch of these. And Paul probably wrote 13 of them that are still in the Scripture. We know he wrote a letter to the Laodicean church that we don't have. We know he wrote a letter, a third letter to the Corinthians, maybe a fourth. He probably wrote a whole bunch of letters we don't know anything about. And apparently, according to God's providence and Holy Spirit, they weren't necessary for our faith and practice. They had a purpose then, but they don't have, they weren't going to serve a, a, a for all time type of purpose. Anyway, but epistolary was something uh, 
uh, writing letters or, or epistles is something that the New Testament, the apostles do a lot, okay? And so Philippians is one of those epistles or letters, and it's important. It's in a small group of Paul's letters that are known as prison letters or epistles. And, of course, that's just because they, he wrote them from prison. Okay. And so um, these letters are significant for us for a lot of reasons. Um, I like the fact that this guy could get thrown in jail unjustly, at times tortured or beaten, and still not get thrown off his game. I mean, God help us. <laughs> God help us. We can have a baby crying and throw us off. I mean, it's like in church, you know what I'm saying? Like, I've, I've tried to be an oak like that when it comes to stuff like that, but my goodness, this guy's in prison. He's encouraging his church people who have their freedom. I mean, that's pretty impressive. And, uh, of course, we've talked about how he did that. He was able to have that kind of an emotional life or control of emotions because he saw, he construed his situation as beneficial for the kingdom of God. Um, if I'm suffering today and there's just no meaning attached to it, that's going to be tougher than if the suffering that I have today is going to help save a child or something like that. So I, I, can, I can see it better when it has, you know, has that purpose. And so Paul said, look, every day I'm in this jail cell more and more people are being converted to the gospel of Jesus. They, they see that we mean business, that they can throw us in jail and beat us, and we're still not going to uh, retract or you know, detract or whatever. And so, uh, and so people are getting saved every day and getting converted to this gospel and joining the kingdom of God and entering its king, the kingdom uh, through this imprisonment. So, hey, this is a, this is a blessing in, in some ways. And so... And so that, that one of the themes of Philippians is joy, and that's what's so impressive. So anyhow, my aunt and uncle came to, they're staying with us, and um, I, I'm, I'm doing everything I can to woo them to the area. We've talked about it for years, and my family's like a, a fam, it's like a, a dominoes. I mean, my aunt Bobby, who is my age, okay, I know that's odd. My grandfather had a child. My grandmother, excuse me, had a child. Grandmother had a child the same year my mom had a child. And those, we grew up like brother and sister. She's my aunt, Aunt Bobby. Well, Luke's got the same situation. It's amazing how families end up doing that. But anyhow, we, we've, got a, we've got that situation. So Bobby and I grew up like brother and sister. And Bobby, my, my aunt technically, is my daughter's uh, virtually, you know, her and Tia, other than, you know, hopefully dad. But those two women are my daughter's favorite people on the planet and so uh, Bobby and Marty are looking to move and if they come down here there's no way my daughter can make it knowing that we're already down here and Aunt Bobby moves too then you know first of all all babysitters are gone you know of any consequence and so on and but also just you know and so they're all we're down here so then Abby comes and when Abby comes my daughter-in-law uh, finally has no other reason left to, uh, to, to, to hold out because her sister-in-law, who she's very close to, will be gone. And my son's been trying to move down here for a long time to hit her husband. And then Casey would be left alone. So he would definitely, you know. <laughs> so it's like a domino thing. I, 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 I have a master plan. I don't want to say I'm Dr. Evil, but I'm, I have a master plan. And, and I'm trying to get these people. And, and, and so Bobby has grown up in church and is a believer. And Marty's a believer of sorts. But Marty hasn't really had significant church experience. He wasn't raised in church certainly open to all of this. Our families had some impact on him, but 
But we had a chance to talk about this very thing yesterday for a long time. And, um, and I, it, it kind of, he asked me, he said, okay, so Jesus, when did Jesus live? And we had this discussion, and I know this seems strange, okay? I'm, I'm going I'm to go back to that dating, the, the, the timeline, okay, for a second. Um, G, uh, let's say Paul. Paul didn't know he was living in 29 AD, okay? He didn't know that, all right? But a, four or five hundred years after Jesus, okay, uh, the Romans had been, in their selfish, you know, way, they had been um, counting the world's uh, history uh, based on their empires, their rulers' uh, rule. And it'd be like, you know, you guys deciding that, you know, since, since y'all got together, you know, um, last year or whatever, then, you know, that's year one. Okay, so, so then, every, and that's how we date everything. You know, it would be like, you know, before you two. So it would be, let's see, how, how do you do that? It would be like a BSJ or something like that. You know, so before Susie and Jimmy and then, you know, after. So one and, and, and one. So, so we, have, we have been doing this dating system forever. We were doing this forever and ever and ever. And... We were doing it because a few hundred years after the Roman Empire, um, a, a guy named Gregory, uh, therefore later on known as the Gregorian calendar, put this system together. And so now, I'm just going to do it this way to give us a little bit of sense. Scholars can't decide, okay? There's good reasons to think that the Exodus happened right around there. And there's some pretty good reasons to think why it happened right there. And we can't decide. And there's two different pharaohs that, you know, whatever. And so, so that, anyway, there's a debate there. And I don't want to get into that tonight. But the point is, is this is a 14 to 1200 B.C. is really when, roughly, that's when the Exodus happened. Okay? And so, uh, just to give you another marker. So you go through all of that, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Maybe you've made that trek through the first part of the Bible and read it through all those books. Okay, and then uh, the children of Israel enter the land in Joshua, and then Judges, and then Ruth, sort of a side story about that time frame. Then you get into Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, and you read about David and Solomon, etc. And so a good date for this guy is right here for like, you know, the dedication of the temple or something like that. And this is all debated. I should probably put plus or minus or something like that, to be honest, because there's, you know, there's a debate. But anyway, we'll just say that this is a general, generally where this, this, this lies. Okay. Then in 586 B.C., this is when the children of Israel actually lose their land. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar... Uh, exiles, uh, excuse me, the Babylonians actually destroy Jerusalem, whatever's left of it. They've already done this two times, but this third one is just devastating. They, they desecrate the temple, just, I mean, just, you know, raise it to the ground, or, and, and, and they just uh, <coughs> carry off the best and brightest of the Jews away to Babylon. It's so sad in the scripture how this is described. Uh, those aren't good words, but that's, that's all I can think of right now. They put nose rings inside these people's noses, and then they ran this rope, this thread, through the nose rings, and then they just herded them like cattle back to Babylon on foot from Israel all the way to Babylon. And so then they mocked them, like apparently, and said, you know, like, hey, sing us a song of Zion. You know, hey, sing us one of those Israel's, you know, great songs or whatever. 
And then Psalms 137 says, um, you know, we can't sing those songs anymore. Uh, we've hung our harps on the willow branches because we can't sing the songs of Zion when we're not there. And so, so, so the history of Israel, I'm not talking about Genesis and creation and all of that. Just, just the history of Israel proper kind of runs through these years, okay? Then they lose their land here. And for four or five hundred years, prophecy goes silent. You know, um, that sort of thing. Oh, I, did, I should finish this. I'm sorry. About, so, so 70 years later, they're allowed to come back after 586. So in the 400s B.C., you get things like Ezra and Nehemiah who are allowed to go back and rebuild the walls and stir the people up and say, hey, man, God's given us a chance to start again and let's dream again and let's get back to reading God's word and let's get back to serving God and praying. And so Ezra reads the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He reads it in this public reading and it's driving rain outside and they just cry and cry and cry because they're so hungry to hear God's word. If I tried to read the book of Genesis to you people on Sunday, I don't know what would happen. He reads Genesis through Deuteronomy in the driving rain and they weep because they're so hungry to hear God's word. Ezra, Nehemiah, uh, they, they then, so these guys were helping kind of stir up the, the, the dream again. And then three prophets named Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are, lit, are raised up and God puts his word in them and they stir the people to rebuild the temple and to and to do it right. You know, Haggai's upset because it's like, hey, God got you back into the land. We're all settled. You built your house. Your house looks great. God's house looks terrible. Can we get back to building God's house? You know, and so and so these guys are prophesying when they die, the the, the temple is rebuilt. Okay? And it's even made better for over several centuries. It's made better and better. And yet God's glory never returns to the temple. Remember in the tabernacle, when Moses was alive, the, the Shekinah glory was on the Ark of the Covenant. And then remember when in David's day, Uzzah reached out to touch it because they put it on the ox cart and they didn't do it. They didn't carry it right. And this guy reached out to touch the Ark. And when he reached out to touch it, he just smote, uh, smitten or you know, he just died. And, and he died, of course, because there's a way to carry the Ark. God told them in Exodus and Leviticus how to carry it. There's these golden rings and you stick these rods through it and you raise it up on your shoulders. Six priests, almost like pallbearers or something, you pick it up, but you don't touch the box. You do not touch the box. And you put the rod on your shoulder and you carry it this way and there's this separation and, and, and they didn't do it right. And David was like, wait a minute, everybody stop. Don't anybody go near it. Go back and read the law and tell me how to do this right. You know, Okay. So, but anyway, so, so the glory's there in the tabernacle days. And then when Solomon dedicates the temple, the glory appears again. The Shekinah fills the house again. Even Isaiah sees this vision of the house being filled. But when this temple, this second temple's rebuilt, no Shekinah glory. When they leave, for, when they leave to exile in Babylon, Ezekiel sees the glory of God leave. And there's a woman who, she bears a child named Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. And the glory never returns. Now, so not during the Old Testament history, okay? So, this kind of background. Now, now then, that said, 
when Gregory put this calendar together, he didn't have all the uh, he didn't have available to him 1,400 years of archaeological discoveries that we have. And so now we know that what he called, you know, say, so this is like 1,000 B.C. and the numbers are going down. He didn't know that 1 B.C., which would, in his mind was the first year, you know, the, the year just before Christ, he didn't know all the things we know uh, and, and, and in terms of Roman Empire, in terms of archaeology, uh, even the coins they found. It's called numismatics where they can, the coin inscriptions that give information, all this kind of stuff. He didn't have that. So we think now that Jesus was actually born in something like 4 B.C. Sometimes you'll see a guy, he'll say 9 B.C. Sometimes you'll see somebody with 1. But anyway, it's not the end of the world anyway. But, but that's kind of where roughly he lived. So then it goes 1 B.C. to 1 A.D. And so then, okay, there's a tradition that Jesus was alive for 33 years. The Bible doesn't say that. But there's a tradition that he did. And so somewhere like this is probably where Jesus died. A.D. 29 to A.D. 33. Something like that. Okay? Again, these are plus or minus, And you can argue these things all day. This isn't even really the main thing I want to get to. But I'm just trying to give you a sense of time. So now, let's just pretend. Okay? Let's just assume that Jesus died here. And when I say that, what I mean is, is with relative certainty, I think this is when he died. But that's your pastor's thought. It isn't the gospel. And it doesn't matter in the scope of your relationship with God. It matters historically, but it doesn't matter in terms of your salvation. But I think it was probably here. This is The best arguments, in my opinion, the most persuasive are this. Let's say this is true. You don't have to agree with it, but you, let's just go with it. Paul then, if you look at your chart, Paul's converted somewhere like this, somewhere like this. Some people will put it out as late as that, okay? But Paul, let's talk about who he was. So, so you're Jewish and you reject Jesus as Messiah. You don't think he's the Messiah, okay? But you see all your friends running off to this cult, you know, okay? And you want to stop it because you're a preacher, you're a priest in the Jewish faith, right? So you have zeal and you want to make this thing go away, right? So Saul of Tarsus, Saul of Tarsus is a Pharisee. He's apparently pretty important. He's also a Roman citizen, which gives him certain privileges and access. And he then is given authority by the Sanhedrin court to go stomp out, stamp out this new cult of Judaism known as the way or Christianity. Okay? This followers of Christ. Okay. So he's doing that. And he's doing it with great gusto. And he, he's there the day that Stephen, the first deacon, is stoned to death. And he's presiding over the execution of Stephen. And so he is an enemy of the Christian faith. And he's given authority to not only stamp it out, you know, it's like in canard, right? But like somebody comes and invests him with authority to go do this around the state of Texas. So he goes up to Damascus and he's going to stamp it out up there. 
And on the road to Damascus, he has a vision of the person he's persecuting. He sees Jesus in all of his glory. He saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And Saul of Tarsus, over a period of time, becomes the Apostle Paul that we know and love from the New Testament. This conversion happened sometime just after the death of Jesus. Not immediately, but very shortly thereafter, okay? Every date on this piece of paper is, in my opinion, some of the best guesses, okay? All of this, when I say guess, I don't mean like you could be radically skeptical about this, like it's 30 years off. But I, I just want to caution everybody that, you know, there's some play here, okay? You don't have to, you know, quote this like it's the Bible. But, but, but these numbers, 33 through 47, we call that the tunnel period. After Paul is converted, for a whole bunch of reasons, he goes away to prepare for ministry. Now, this happens for a lot of reasons. Uh, for one thing, you just murdered Stephen, okay? And now you're joining us, okay? I mean, if somebody had just come in here and into our fellowship and presided over the execution of Daryl because of his faith in Christ. And then we heard the next week that he, this guy went to Kevin's church and he came to Christ there at Full Gospel. Or he was at Trinity Fellowship and the guy gave his heart to Christ. There would be plenty of us here, uh, particularly Laura, who would be like, Wait a minute, check please. I'm not sure that we're ready to embrace this character, you know, as a, one of us. Who's to say he's not a spy or a plant or, you know, like maybe the Romans have gotten really smart and they've planted this Paul in, among us. So he has all of that baggage, right? He's carrying a lot. Then he has, then we have this whole other issue. When you read the New Testament, you discover that one of the things the early church was concerned about was that people who were going to teach and were going to be in ministry and all that sort of thing, that they didn't, that they weren't novices. That's actually one of the qualifications of a bishop and deacon in the New Testament. Don't be a novice. Um, when I first came to Christ, and I, I knew that I was going to be a minister immediately. I'd had that call as a child. It was like a, a light switch went off, and I wanted to tell everybody about Jesus. But I didn't know a whole lot, okay? Now, I knew Bible stories. I probably knew a lot more Bible than the average American adult. But as far as, like, life and how to apply it, being wise, I didn't have much of that. And there were people who were basically saying to me, you don't need to go to school, you don't need to do that, you have this, you think this preaching thing or whatever, you got the anointing, whatever it is, you just need to get out there and do it, right? Okay, okay. And that was cool. And I was brand new to all of this. And I didn't even have any life experience. It wasn't like I was a 45-year-old man who gave my life to Christ. And I mean, you're talking about a kid who really doesn't have a lot of life experience yet, right? I mean, I have, I have way too bad, I have some horrible life experience, but as far as like having children, having my own business, working the job for 15 years, whatever. Like, I don't have all of that stuff. And so, so that's, Saul goes away because he's going to be involved in ministry, and it's like you need to rethink everything, and you need some time. I think there's something really instructive about that, and it, it's about the way that I do things 
personally, in my own life, in the ministry at Mount Olive, and in any ministry I've ever been a part of, I care very much about that. Um, in the Church of God, we, I, I was over an evangelism board, and so we were responsible for the churches that they started. The plant, church plants were considered evangelism or an aspect of it. And so we had to, uh, in the Church of God, we, in that evangelism board, we had to know those that labored among us. We had to be, I was responsible for people that were going to plant churches. So I wasn't interested in whether we were going to give them a little bit of money to help them. I could care less about that. I say give them the max as far as I was concerned because we had money sitting in CDs doing nothing. And I was all for it. I didn't care. Of course, it wasn't my money, but I was, you know, I didn't care. I was like, sure, whatever. I just want to know that this guy and his wife are that, that, those people. For, so so that, I want to know that they're God's men and women for that city and that they're ready. If I, that's what I, so I spent a whole lot more time on the interview of the new pastors than I did on the whether we're going to give them the little bit of money we were going to give them to help. You know, okay? And so that's, that was concerning to me. So Saul of Tarsus, I'm just trying to make this practical, put this into real history. Like how we would respond to this stuff. Because sometimes we idolize all of it and make it out to be some special thing because it's in the Bible. But these were real people. And when you read Paul, every people were jealous. People were obnoxious. People were sinful. People, they were dealing with the same stuff you and I are dealing with. Paul preached one time and a guy fell asleep and fell down and, and virtually died. Just died and, Jesus, and then he had to pray and resurrect him. I mean, it's not just modern day preachers in America who have people snoozing on him. I mean, that happened a long time ago. In the Bible. You know? You know all these horrible scandals we hear about. The, you know, these sexual scandals, these financial scandals that go on in the church. It's like, what was Ananias and Sapphira? That was a big scandal. I mean, it was a big enough scandal those people were... Drop dead in church over the whole thing. So there's some Corinthians, that church was wicked and crooked and twisted, and they had all kind of stuff going on. So anyhow, having said that, um, so Saul is converted. He goes through a tunnel period. He went to Arabia. We hear that in Galatians. That's interesting because that's where Mount Sinai is, and it's also where Elijah went. So that's just I just wrote that down just because I like to make those connections in your mind. Um, see what the Lord will do with that. So he does visit Jerusalem a few times in the tunnel period. And when he visits the, the Jerusalem, it's, it's for various reasons. Um, I'm going to let you look at the rest of that and get into Philippians, okay? But I'll, I'll answer any questions you got there, uh, deal with any comments later. Let's, let's go back to Philippians and let's start again, okay? Um, Philippians is... Written for several purposes. It's a missionary support letter, we said last week. Uh, Paul had a bunch of problem churches. Like, how many of you grew up in a word church? You know what I'm talking about? A word church where they preached. That was the whole thing. They preached God's word. Anybody? How about a singing church? Anybody grow up in a singing church? We grew up in a singing church. Okay, we sing and sing and sing that gospel, okay? Uh, a loving church, a friendly church. You know those churches out there? Loving churches. They loved you and friendly and fellowship and all that kind of stuff. And they, how many of you were in a problem church? Uh, those problem churches. I, I went to a bunch of them. Okay, yeah, I, I served. Maybe I'm the common denominator. I don't know. I went to several of those problem churches. Okay. Philippians was about one of the only healthy churches Paul has. He doesn't have to do a bunch of like, you know, like, Corinthians needs a lot of correction, right? And there's several of them when it's like, you people need to get together. 
You know, you people need to get your act together and stop fighting each other and all this kind of crazy stuff. Or, or he has to get on to him and say, y'all need to be helping more. Whatever. Philippians not like that. The Philippian church is supporting him even while he's in prison. Okay, they've been very helpful. And they've been steady Freddy and faithful. And God bless the faithful, quiet masses that don't have names that we all know. Thank God. You know, when you read church history, you read about John Wesley and Martin Luther and John Calvin and these people like that, Teresa of Avila. You read about these big figures, okay? Big name figures, famous people. But the truth is, those people were preaching to hundreds and thousands of Christians who don't have names that we all know that are lost to history. They're the ones that were the faithful ones that kept coming and kept believing and kept struggling through and wrestling with this faith and wrestling with this word and trusting God and sharing their faith at work and striving and knocking down and getting back up and failing and getting back up and getting a victory. And those people like that, those are the ones in the church, in Philippians, there must have been quite a few of those people that we don't know their name because they, they had a strong church in Philippi. And so Paul is writing a missionary support letter for one thing. He sends Philippians to them to say, hey, you guys have been really helpful in the past. Let me update you on what the ministry's doing and we could use your help. And that's one of the things that he's doing. And if you think that's beneath the Bible, read the letter. That's what he's doing. Okay. The second thing we said last week that he's doing is that he's encouraging them because they need to keep making progress. Keep making progress. I think some people that I've come to know over the years in ministry, I've met quite a few Christians who I think believe they've kind of arrived. Like, like this is kind of about what... It, I mean, I could do a little better, you know. But like, really, I'm here. <laughs> you know? Like, we're here. And I just think, Lord, help us. I mean, I, there's so much more to know, to be, to do, to experience... That how could we ever get to a place of complacency? And yet, apparently the Philippians were kind of like that. We're faithful. You know, we're a nice family church. We don't cause a lot of problems. We stamp out heresy. We don't stand for a bunch of moral failures and shenanigans and all that. We're respectable people, but we're also willing to be compassionate and giving and all that too. And so... We're good, solid people, and therefore, there's this potential for religious pride and complacency and just kind of like, we've, we've made it. And so Paul's letter to Philippians is goading them. Remember, the Philippians is where he says, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Okay. So, so... Making progress, we said last week, is a big deal because God, God wants to put the world to right. He wants to put this world He created to rights. And therefore, He puts me right. He makes me right so that I can be part of making the world right. And that's where I've been saying to you as a church, we've been getting this whole thing so mixed up because we've made our own salvation, which basically means forgiveness in heaven to us, we've made individual salvation the main thing, which is really, in the scope of things, not nearly as often talked about as the big picture. Jesus did not come, Matthew 4, John the Baptist did not come, Matthew 3, saying, 
God wants to forgive your sins, has a wonderful plan for your life, and you get to go to heaven. They don't say that. Now, they, the Bible says some things like that, but the Bible says that Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so Jesus' regular message had to do with the kingdom. When you read Matthew 13, every one of those parables is about the kingdom. Okay? Remember what happened in the Old Testament history I gave you just before we started Philippians? The history was this. Yahweh's glory never returned. Jesus shows up and He's saying, I'm back. Okay? God is here. The Lord reigns. Jesus' incarnation, His becoming flesh, is the inauguration of the kingdom. And the cross of Jesus is the establishment of that kingdom. Okay, that, That's really what's going on. God is doing a big world thing, a big kingdom thing, a putting the world to right thing. And He does this for you, makes you right, so you can be part of this putting the rest of the world to rights. So in other words, everything you were taught about Jesus died for me, He loves me, I get to be with Him forever, none of those things are false. They're all true, but they've just been skewed and, bl- and moved completely, uh, just totally disproportionate. We've been preaching about one subset of a much bigger plot that God has. In the garden, God isn't saying, Sean, I want to save your sins. He's saying, Adam... I'm building this Eden gar- like this paradise garden. I want you to dress it and keep it. You have a job as a royal priest. And then y'all replenish the earth and spread this kingdom of God in my presence and my dwelling with people all over the world. Make this paradise be, make the whole earth like this. That's the big project. It gets way off base, gets knocked off its course. Jesus comes back and says, I'm doing that. I'm finishing that. Here's me fixing the thing, okay? And then in the end, we don't hear just about, in Revelation 22, we don't hear about how we all went up to heaven's jubilee. In Revelation 22, the new Jerusalem comes down to the earth. We reign on the renewed earth forever and ever and ever as kings and priests. So that's the big story the Bible is trying to tell. And Sean's salvation is a piece of that. Mm-hmm. It's not the whole thing. So again... Praise God every day and be grateful for the gift of, and sacrifice and forgiveness that Jesus has provided. Be grateful and have hope that when the world looks bleak and bad, when you feel you get a bad report or whatever, physically or whatever, know that we are to be absent from the body, to be present with God. and all. Have that hope. Thank the Lord and be grateful for your forgiveness of sins and salvation. But understand that that is just a piece of the puzzle. And only in America in the 20 and 21st centuries could we make it just about us, okay? That's what I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to chip away and chip away at that. And some people will say, well, if that's true, and if he's going to fix it all, if he's just got to come back to make it all right, well, then what is my work even for? What am I doing? That's a good question, and I'm going to show you what the answer is, right? I'm going to give you a good answer to that question. Here it is, okay? Pretend like that you're living... In the medieval world, let's say it's the 12th century, okay, the 1100s, and you're in London, and you're a dirt-sucking peasant, okay, okay, that's what you are, 
a dirt-sucking peasant. You are a day laborer. You are working all the live-long day on the railroad, whatever, you know. That's what you're doing. You're not on the railroad, but you get the idea, okay? And this guy who terrifies you, he shows up every six months. He's your supervisor, okay? He shows up and he dumps a bunch of stone in front of you from about here to the wall and wall to wall and just dumps this load of stone on you and your son and your son, uh, your other son and, and your cousin. And he says, okay, come here, sit down. Here's your instruction. I want you to take this tool and I want you to do this. Nine quadrillion times, okay? I want you to do this motion. That right there, on the stone, smooth it, smooth it, smooth it. And you think, and, the, and you're sitting there and you're going like, okay, and it's mind numbing. Okay, go pick this up and put it over here and get it set right. Now we've built some little thing so we can put it on here. And now we're just chip, chip. Okay, we're doing this thing. And for six months, you're just like, I don't know what I'm doing. My work seems pointless, mindless, stupid. I don't know why I'm doing this. Then six months later, the big boss comes back and he starts taking those stones that you've been chip, chip, chipping away and smoothing and doing those little motions he gave you to do. And they take those things and they fasten them into the wall of this massive cathedral. One of the great buildings in Europe designed for the worship of God. Now, I know that we can all say, well, that was slavery and, you know, those, that's God can't be contained in those houses and all that. And I understand all that. What I want you to see is this. Those months and months of chipping away and smoothing away, smoothing and chipping and smoothing the rock and smoothing the rock, it seemed mindless and pointless to you. Your, your work seemed like uselessness. <laughs> what pointlessness? Why would anybody do this? What good could possibly come out of it? And then when they fit that stone into that wall and you see the product of your work reflected in this gorgeous building that's going to be visited by tourists for a thousand years, a place where they're going to worship the God that you worship, okay, all of a sudden your work takes on a different perspective, takes on a different significance. What I want to say to you is this. By analogy, we share the gospel. We do our reading. We do our praying. We practice our spiritual disciplines. We share our faith. We try to live as people of character. We tell people about Christ with our lives and with our words. We practice intercessory prayer. We lay hands on the sick. We preach the gospel. We teach the young. We just chip, chip, chip. And some days when you're on Monday and lots of pastors quit in their mind on Monday, okay? And so they go chip, chip, chip. And we just chip away and chip away and chip away. And one day the Bible says that in, by analogy, that I'm going to see I am a living stone and you are a living stone 
And Jesus is the cornerstone of this house that God is building of worship, not a building of, of, of uh, materials, but a building of people. Okay? And one day we're going to be there. God told Mount Olive in a town of hundreds, you're going to reach thousands. And we said, well, in a world that's interested in billions and trillions, thousands doesn't sound so great. But at the time, when it was 45 to 65 people or something like that, and God said that we would reach thousands, I tried to help you envision the idea that one day, these chipping away, those of you who bring food for fellowships, those of you who clean the church, who mow the yard, who did some workday stuff, who do the intercessory prayer, who text the pastor on Monday because you heard him say one time that preachers quit on Mondays in their heads, and so you text the pastor every Monday or once a month on Monday. The people who do the things that we do, chip, chip, chipping away. One day when we stand before God, we're not going to be looking at some stones that we put that fit into a cathedral. But we're going to look up there and we're going to see all of these people who are like living stones. And we're going to say with the Lord, um, this is the host. All of those that you gave me, we lost none. Jesus said in John 17, of all of the ones you gave me, we haven't lost any. And of course, Ezekiel 34, God's angry at the shepherds because they're not chasing after the lost. They're not helping the wounded and that sort of thing. And they're not chasing after those that have gone astray. But in this place, what God's called us to do, these, things, these practices like reading scripture, is part of that chipping and chipping and chipping away until one day we get to see the living stone. So our work matters. You can't earn your way to heaven you can't say, well, if I win a hundred people to Christ, if I get them over the finish line because I pray the Romans Road prayer with them and I tell it to them and they pray with me and they say the, and, and, and to, to be saved, then maybe God will like me enough or forgive me for the bad stuff I did enough so that I get to be in heaven and I avoid some worse darkness or eternal destruction. That's not how it works. But even though our work won't earn our salvation, our work still matters. It's still valuable, okay? So Paul's trying to tell the Philippians <laughs> something like that. How does my work contribute? Well, it matters, okay. So if you're going to work for the Lord, live for the Lord, then your life needs to follow the pattern of the Lord. Jesus said, follow me. And that, that looks like the pattern of Jesus' life, cross, resurrection, ascension, exaltation. And Philippians wants you to see that. And I want to show it to you tonight. This is new information from last week that we didn't get into last week. These two passages in Philippians teach this principle. I want you to see the pattern. Last week I did read this passage to you. I'm not going to spend a lot of time reading it. I'm just going to point this out to you. 
Philippians 2, 5 through 11 shows us a pattern. This is an early Christian psalm. If there had been a Christian radio station in the first century AD in the Roman Empire, they would have played it. This. This was a song. They sang this at church. It was also something like a creed or a statement of faith. Okay? And it was an early Christian hymn. Let this mind be in you, or have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Okay? So, have the mind of Christ. Well, what does that look like? Well, here's what it looks like to have the mind of Christ. He was in the form of God and did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he was it. And yet, he emptied himself, took upon him the form of a servant, born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, um, when we hear even death on a cross, some of you think that that's said because of the pain associated. And when you watch the movie that Mel Gibson did in the 90s or 80s, The Passion of Christ, they emphasized the pain of the cross. But I want to suggest to you that in addition to the torture that's involved in the cross, and it is torturous because it, it, it deliberately, uh, you know, stretches out the pain. You know, it makes the pain go, go, you know, suffering worse because it tries to keep you alive longer. That, that's a big part of it for sure. But actually, even the death of the cross, there's plenty of cruel ways to kill people that are really painful. But the, the thing about the death of the cross, Paul's a Jew and Jesus was Jewish. And the Bible says in Deuteronomy that every man who hangs on a tree is cursed. And so what even the death on a cross doesn't mean just that Jesus was suffering horribly physically. He was. But it means a lot more than that. Deuteronomy tells us that, that, that Jesus, according to that passage, would have died. The Jews didn't make any distinction between a tree or a cross. And so he died under God's curse. And that's why Paul has to say in Galatians... Yeah, I'm embracing that. He became a curse for us. Okay? He doesn't hide from that. In Galatians, he actually says, you're right. He became a curse for us. So for the Jews, the cross was a stumbling block. No self-respecting human being could be killed that way. Okay? They couldn't do that. And there's a certain kind of brand of Christianity floating around in America today that if you die tragically or someone in your family dies tragically, that that somehow shows up some secret sin in your life. And there is a theology that teaches that. And there are people who believe that. If you have a tragedy that happens in your family, that obviously shows that you weren't... Which sounds a very much like Job's comforters. It sounds a whole lot like Job's friends who show up when Job's had all these bad things happen and they go, well, obviously... You know, I mean... So Eliphaz is a little more eloquent. Then Bildad comes in. He's a little harder. And then Zophar comes in and he just says what the other two guys were too afraid to say, I guess. Or had some, you know, whatever, compassion. And he just says, look, we know that you've been sinning, pal. And that's the reason why all these bad things have been happening to you. Okay. Okay. There's a theology that says that. So Jesus dies under God's curse. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. That's why. 
It's also, even the death of the cross, it's also foolishness to the Greeks. For them, the gods have all the power. For them, it's ridiculous to think that God would ever become a worm like a human being anyway. And then when He did, if He did, why in the world He would subject Himself to such a death and a shameful thing? It is beneath a God. And so, Paul says, not only did Jesus humble Himself to take on this pain. See, to me, if He was just talking about the pain, He would have emphasized the fact that Jesus braced Himself. But He doesn't. He says He humbled Himself. He emptied Himself. Sometimes, to protect somebody else's reputation, you keep silent. You take a hit. You keep yourself quiet. And when you do that, People don't understand you or what you're doing and they misrepresent what you're doing and they, they can't understand you and they just assume then that where there's smoke, there must be fire. You're a bad guy or a bad girl or whatever. And so therefore, again, Jesus humbles Himself and says, I will take on all of that misunderstanding. I will take on your ridicule. You can mock me and say, if you're the Son of God, why don't you come down? You can do all of that. He humbles himself to that. Okay? That's the pattern of life that, God, that is God's life. And Paul says, that's the pattern we're supposed to follow. <laughs> say, wait a minute. I don't die for everybody's sins. No, you don't. Now, let's finish the pattern first, and I'll show you where he, changed, where he shows us that. Okay, so verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 8. Being found in human form, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now then look what happens though. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus everything will bow. Okay, so, so the process, the life pattern is you live your life in service to others. You, you go to a cross. Then God raises you. You ascend and you're exalted. Okay, for us... We're already dead with Christ through baptism, through our whole conversion experience and uh, that whole thing. The Bible says then, we are then in Christ or with Christ in heavenly places. We have already been exalted in Christ now. Now, it, it doesn't appear what we shall be someday, but we are already there. And we can experience some of the victories of royal priests right here in the here and now if we have faith, if we believe, if we take on the identity that we have been given in Christ and assume it and say yes. I, I, you know, to me, I, I just hear these, I hear uh, the enemy just terrified at us because we're like toddlers with something priceless in our hands, or perhaps even with a weapon in our hands, and he's scared to death. We can't really aim the thing yet. We can't really hold the thing right. We're juggling it. But if we ever figure out how to aim that or, or hold it, then his kingdom is in big trouble. And that's when we decide we are in Christ and who we are in Christ, then we take that role as kings and priests. Then we do damage to the enemy's kingdom. Then we're not just in that fort thanking Jesus for forgiveness and holding on for heaven. Understand? That's the imagery. I don't like that imagery. I, don't, I do not like that imagery because that is a defensive imagery. Jesus had to forgive me of my sins so that He could put me in heavenly places in Christ and make me the royal priest He made me to be. When I make this everything, then I miss out on all of that. I should never, ever 
walk over this, disgrace this, be ungrateful for this, but I should always understand it as just the door that got me into the house. And the house you move around in. You don't just stand at the door. You walk around in that thing and make it yours, right? So that's, 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 what we're, that's why we keep trying to say it in different ways. Okay, Philippians 3, uh, 10. Okay, I want you to remember, Paul's in jail. And the handout I gave you, we, get to, we only get to the 57 in the handout. This, this letter's probably written in 62 AD, something like that. He's almost dead. He's in prison, okay? He will die, according to Eusebius, in 67 AD. He will die five years from now, okay? He's on the back end of his life and ministry when he writes Philippians. Listen to that man when he writes verse 10 of chapter 3. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, this is the pattern of royal priests. Jesus showed us how to live it. A true man, a real man, the way man and women were made to be, He lived it for us. He showed us how, and this is the pattern. You live your life in service, you take up your cross, you're willing to humble yourself and be emptied, and then God raises you up, and God exalts you, God ascend, you ascend to, uh, in heavenly places in Christ, and you are exalted. This is the pattern of life. And so He says though, as an older man, that I may know Him, that sounds like somebody who just came to faith. That sounds like a newborn baby in Jesus. I love that. I love it because it says that there's never any room for complacency. If you spend 60 years serving Jesus Christ, you should never get bored. You will always be new things, new experiences, new, new, new uh, understandings, new revelation to you. Not necessarily, like, I don't mean new revelation beyond the Scripture. I just mean, like, a lot of times, I think I've said this before to y'all. When I read John 3.16 when I was, you know, 17, I read it differently than when I read it when I was 37. I see things in it. Then, I, then when I was 47, I heard other things in it that I didn't see when I was 17. And that's because of the different seasons of your life. It's because of where you happen to be spiritually in those moments. And it's because of just your age and your experiences as you, as you get older. And so the scripture, it, it just never, it, it, it just renews. It's a living book. It's a living word. And so um, it, it should never, it should never be boring. Paul says, that I may know him. Now look what he says about knowing. I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. Well, I do too. I want, I, I want to overcome sin. I want to overcome death. But he also says... And that I may share in his sufferings. Because that's part of the pattern. You can't have one without the other. The Old Testament says, Weeping endures for the night, but joy comes in the morning. We have to go to the cross in order to experience resurrection. The way that a lot of great theologians have said it, one of the best ways I've ever heard it in terms of the cross is that the cross is never going to be something done for you until you understand that it's something done by you. Okay. 
You don't get the benefits of the cross. You don't, you don't get the cross isn't for you in salvation in a saving way until you understand that it's some, something done by you. When you say, well, wait a minute. I thought that Judas was greedy and his greed put Jesus on the cross because he betrayed him to the Sanhedrin at night. Yep. And I thought that Caiaphas, the priest, high priest, was jealous of the love and power and authority that Jesus uh, possessed over the people uh, in a way that took away from his authority and the temple's authority, etc. I thought it was his envy, and it was. And then I thought it was Pontius Pilate who knew Jesus wasn't guilty of any crimes, but who was too cowardly and didn't want a disruption with his boss, the higher-ups. He didn't want him going around him, circumventing him and going to the big guy in Rome and, and maybe messing up his good gig he had going, his good job, his good retirement plan and all of that. And so I thought it was his greed and his envy and his cowardice that put Jesus on the cross. And the answer is it was. It was also our greed and our envy and our cowardice. And until the cross is something that we see done by us, it will never be something done for us. And that's why Rembrandt's painting of the crucifixion of Christ is something all of you ought to go and look at someday. Even if it's online. And just reflect on it. Because down in the crowd, and you can Google this to get all the help you need. You don't have to have any... Um, you don't have to spend a bunch of money or have any particular art education or art history for this. You can just look it up. But Rembrandt paints his own face. He paints his own face in the scene of the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, Rembrandt lived 1,500 years after Jesus was born. But he painted himself there in the scene to make the deep theological point that most people in the Western world have forgotten. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Yes, we were there. I may not have physically been present, but it was my sin that put him there. I might as well have been there physically because it was my sin that did it. So this pattern is what Paul is holding up to us as the Christian life. If any man would follow me, Jesus said, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow that's how you do it. Now, you don't do this just so you can go be martyred. You do it knowing that resurrection, ascension, and exaltation are coming. That's the pattern of life. But we must be humbled and emptied of ourselves. In my experience, so this is my grandfather. And y'all can disagree with him, okay? You can. He wasn't God. He was a man. But he used to tell me when I was, as a young minister, as his grandson, he used to say, son... He said, you can't earn your salvation, okay? And you can't. But he, he told us years and years ago, he said, I, you, you never have to do anything to earn love from me. I love you instinctively, naturally, spontaneously. I can't help it. I love you. You do have to earn trust from me. That's what he said. He said, you don't have to earn any love from me, but you do have to earn trust from me. You do have to earn some trust. That has nothing to do with your salvation, okay? And in terms of pop, but my papa it had nothing to do with was my grandfather loving me or not. I knew that. That was, that was a given. He loved me. It was also true that 
if I had lied to him or if he had discovered this or that or the other, that there were going to be consequences for that, right? So you've got to prove yourself in terms of that. So this is that kind of understanding led him to say what he told me. And after all the years of seminary and study that I've done too privately, I can't best it. I, think it's, I still think it's true. Um, you may not like the way it sounds, but, but I, I, I can't get around it. I, I think it's biblically, I think it's supported in the Bible, and I think it's true in my experience. And that is, you can't earn salvation, but he said you will pay a price for anointing. Now, some people want to say, oh, no, God's gifts are, you know, they just, you know, you know okay, what, what, good, okay, great, great, great. And he does give us some gifts that we don't deserve and we don't earn and all that. That's all true. I get it. But it's also true that as someone becomes faithful, be, ruler, be faithful over a few things, I'll make you ruler over many. That doesn't have anything to do with your salvation. But it doesn't have a lot to do with what God's going to trust us with. Well, God, how come I can't understand this? It seems like a contradiction in the Bible. And God says, yeah, be faithful. Why don't you obey the seven things that you're not obeying right now, and then I'll give you some revelation on that deal. Okay? So why don't you be faithful over here, and then I'll explain that to you. You're not ready for that yet. You're not faithful enough for that yet. Okay, Earn that. Pay a price for that. Push back some TV time and some hobby time and get in here with my word and then you'll know that kind of stuff. You have to pay a price for that kind of thing. You have to pay a price for anointing. I believe that. I, some people don't like it and I've had people you know, come back at me on that and that's okay, it's fine. But in my experience, I will tell you in ministry that there have been times when my personal suffering was pretty high for me. Everybody's pain is relative. Your pain is real to you. I mean, I don't know yours and you don't know mine. And, you know, so, I mean, you can't really compare that stuff. You've only lived your life. You haven't lived mine. I haven't lived yours. So your pain is real to you. But there were times in my life that seemed to be about the most painful I'd ever been through. And I was in the deepest suffering I'd ever been in. Emotionally, spiritually, mentally, physically at times. And some of those times in faithfulness I saw God do the greatest things that I ever, ever saw Him do. I did a revival in Houston one time that was uh, one of the revivals I did in Houston on the southeast side and actually uh, near uh, Deer Park, Pasadena, that area some of y'all are very familiar with. I did a revival down there and it was one of the best and most successful in terms of conversion and deliverance and healing and everything that I've ever been a part of. It was supposed to be a few days. It turned out to be a few weeks. And uh, anyhow, I was suffering. My sister had died tragically, and I had to do the funeral. I thought I was going to lose my mother over that whole thing. Um, my dad, I wasn't so sure about either. It was a very difficult time. I didn't grieve because, you know, my kids were very close to my sister. And they were having a hard time. And I just, I, I just, I didn't have space for it. I couldn't do it. They needed me to be what I needed to be. And the ministry was busy. And there was a lot. I mean, I had a calendar 
full for the whole year of preaching where I was going to travel all over the state and outside the state some. And I had all these facilities I had to take care of. And people, people calling me, emailing me every day. Hey, can you get my kid into a room? Hey, can you get my kid a bed? Hey, can you help my brother? And it was just, I was just kind of at a breakneck speed. And emotionally, I was just, just gone, blown. And, and during that whole season, I, I, I did manage to find faithfulness there. I didn't do it perfectly, but I managed faithfulness through that season. And I was in Houston, and, and I was being tempted and assailed in ways I hadn't been tempted and assailed in more than a decade. I went into the hotel the church had me set up in, and they had a restaurant and a bar downstairs. And I walked past that the first night on Sunday night, and I hadn't thought about drinking in more than a decade. And I walked past that bar, and something said to me, uh, an enemy said to me, hey, you need to sleep. You need to sleep. You don't need to go to a bar and do, you know, out there or whatever, but you need to sleep. You just go in there and, and, and you can go straight to your room. You're not going to get in a car. You're not going to hurt anybody. Go in there, do your thing, get in the bed, go to sleep, and you'll, and, and you'll be, you know. And I just was like, huh, where'd that come from? And I went into the room and I couldn't sleep. And I just clawed the walls all night. Not because of that, but because of the, my sister's death, all these other things that were happening. I couldn't grieve when I was at home, and so it was happening on the road, and it was awful. I felt so lonely, and I just, it, was, it was just terrible, terrifying. I was just being attacked in so many terrible ways. And, and, then the, and I went to church the next day, and I'm laying hands on people, and, and this person is getting healed of some... M- 10-year disease, and this, this guy's getting delivered, and he's ready to go to a facility, not even because he's ever going to use again, because he wants to go into ministry, and these people's marriages are getting restored, and I'm in these revival at night, and it's like the greatest things I've ever seen, just bang, 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 happening all around me, and then I go home Monday night to the hotel, and I go Monday night, and Monday night, the enemy's like, this voice is like, man, that was an awful night last night. I told you. Just go in there and get a drink and go to sleep. I shook that off and went back to the room. Tuesday night, same thing. Church, crazy, good, amazing things are happening. Church says, we got to extend this revival. I'm like, yeah, we do. I get it. I know. It's awesome. It's great. You know, I'm just like walking around and all these things are happening. Everybody can't even believe my reactions because I'm just kind of like, you're right. It's amazing. God is good. Go to bed. You know, it's like, I don't know what to say because I'm just, I'm just numb. I don't feel anything. I don't feel it. The Bible says you're supposed to preach when you're in season and when you're out of season. You're supposed to do the right things when you feels good to do good and when you get blessed for doing good and when everybody says praises to you when you do good and when nobody notices and when it hurts really bad and when you and, and in character is who you are when nobody's watching. So I go Tuesday night and church is crazy good and I come back and this night, Tuesday or Wednesday night, I can't remember the exact night, but I remember another night, Tuesday or Wednesday, probably Wednesday night. And that voice said, you could score something better than alcohol in there tonight. Easily, you know how to do it. You wouldn't have to do anything. You could have one conversation with somebody and you would be in la-la land. You could just, you know, coast. And I got, I got nervous enough. I'm going to tell you what I did. Now, a lot of my compatriots in the branch of the church that I was in, they would have thought what I did next was crazy. It was the wrong way to go. It wasn't spiritual. 
It was very spiritual for what I was going through. The Bible said he humbled himself. He humbled himself. I, they used to have phone books back then. That's how long ago this revival was. And I went to the phone book. And I found the local AA meeting. And I walked in there. Amen. And I said to those people, this is where I'm at. I'm preaching revival in this town. And this is where I'm at. And I have, and I, I tell, I tell my clean time. When I told my clean time, like 15 years, they were all like eyeballs like that. And I said, you know, I mean, but here I am. This is my sober time. This is my clean time. But here I am, nonetheless. And I did my talk. And I had a couple in there that are actual Christians. And after we got done talking, I ended up, God used me in that place that night helping seven, eight guys. I couldn't even believe it. And then I walked out to the corner and two guys out by my car laid their hands on me and prayed for me. And, uh, away from the meeting. And they laid their hands on me and prayed for me. And I went home that night to the hotel. I went and slept. I had a good night's sleep. And I did that whole revival for three weeks, that bar sitting there. I didn't go in there one time. Sometimes, sometimes, you have to pay prices for anointing. Whether that's spending time studying for years like Paul did or going away to do something down the road or some, whether that's pushing away a plate or pushing away a TV or pushing away a hobby to pray or to go visit the sick or to go witness or go sit with somebody like Job's comforter should have and just kept their mouth shut. Job 13 and 5 is the greatest wisdom in the Bible for most of us. Job 13 and 5 says, Oh, that you would keep silence and that would be your wisdom. <laughs> That's one of the greatest Bible verses in the whole book. Just, you know, oh, that you people, oh, that you would just shut your mouth and that would be the wisdom. I mean, God has had to show me that recently with my family when I've been wanting to go, Hey, you, you need to. That's not what I. And God's, oh, that. Silence you would keep. And that would be your wisdom. So that night and that revival, part of paying the price was humbling myself and going in there and telling a bunch of strangers, I'm supposed to be some superstar Christian and here I am and I'm struggling like this. But do you know what? I really believe that that night, 10 or 12 men who weren't part of the faith probably inched a little bit closer to it because they saw some reality in somebody instead of something fake. So even though the devil was beating me down about how low I am and how sorry I am for preaching a revival and having these kinds of temptations, God ended up using even those things somehow, and that's how He does it. So paying the price for an anointing, that's an example. Bible study, prayer, being faithful when it doesn't feel good, humbling yourself, telling the truth, confession. That's one of the spiritual disciplines. Okay, I'm going to quit, but I, I want to offer you this to, as you go. That thing about silence, I think it's Job 13 and 5. It is. I'm just okay, good, thank you. Job 13 and 5. That thing about silence, Job actually says that to one of his comforters. What he's saying is, I know you think you got a lot of wisdom. Oh, that you would keep silence and that would be your wisdom is what he's saying. But really... You know, that's what he's saying to his friend. I mean, I know you've wanted to say that to 9,000 people in your life, but God has kind of turned that on me a lot lately. It's been like, why don't you get quiet? Don't you just listen to your children's half-baked ideas and just, you know, your grown kids' half-baked ideas. I mean, your kids can have half-baked ideas, and it isn't all that strange. It's funny. But someday when they have half-baked ideas, it'll be more consequential. And when that happens, God says to me, hey, I want you to be, I want you to be quiet instead of 
always having to be the fix it, Mr. Fix it with your mouth. That's tough. That's tough to say, oh, that I would keep silence and that would be my wisdom. That I love my kids and you love my kids way more than I do. So when I say to you, but I have to do this, God, because these people are going to run into a, off into a ditch if I don't do it. And God says, yeah, I'm clothing the lilies of the field and the sparrows, I see it when they fall. Man, I wish that God spoke to me the way he does Joel Osteen with the blessings all the time. I mean, when, I, when God speaks to me, man, it's a lot of times it is like, you know, like, dude, get your act together. I love you. I made you for so much better than this. Come on, man. You know, that kind of thing. No offense to Joel. I taught his nieces in, in Arlington. I'm not... I actually taught his nieces, and so I, don't, I always use him because I feel like I have some kind of a connect because of the families. I don't, I don't mean to disparage him, but there's a sunny side of the gospel, you know, there that I just, for me, it's like God, you know what, God probably doesn't do that to him too. I don't know. But, but I want to, I want to pray, I want to pray about this silence thing, not just in your interactions with people, But I want to talk about silence with regard to your reading and prayer and remind you that silence is a spiritual discipline. I want to remind you tonight in prayer that silence would be good to practice at home sometimes when you want the noise of music or the noise of the television or the the screen of the, the, the social media. Silence and solitude are spiritual disciplines that we've been practicing to prepare our hearts to hear the Lord for thousands of years. And so, oh, that you would keep silence. And oh, that you would tune out all the noise. And that would be your wisdom. (laughs) Father, how many times in my life and certainly in my ministry... Have I heard someone say, I just need to hear from God. I just haven't heard from God. Or I've never learned how to hear from God. Or it's been so long since I heard from the Lord. Father, I must have heard that thousands of times. I must have felt that way many times myself. Now sometimes that silence... It has other roots and other reasons. But sometimes that feeling that you're not speaking is completely untrue because of this one factor. We're just not listening. We're busy. You're trying to speak to us through that person at work who's driving us crazy. The circumstances in our lives are pushing us to hear from God and we're not paying attention. We keep going around the bend and we keep going in circles and we keep wondering why are we in this circle? And God is saying, yes, there is a word, a lesson, a a detour, a path. I keep showing you. I want you to go right and you keep going left. And when you make four lefts, you're back where you started. I wanted you to go right two lefts ago. Father, oh, that we would keep silent. And that would be our wisdom. 
that maybe, maybe as a spiritual discipline, the next time that we think that we ought to correct somebody, whether it's our spouse or our family member or our coworker or whatever, maybe, Father, that very next time that we think we have the words and wisdom that are going to fix it and we're going to say something, maybe what we ought to do that time is just be silent. And see, as a practice, how hard that is to do sometimes. Or maybe the next time that we're feeling sad or irritable, or we feel down and think, well, that God doesn't care or God isn't listening, maybe that day we need to turn off all media for the rest of the day and only listen and see if God will speak in the silence. Maybe in our busyness, we need to set aside some time to go physically, literally get in a closet alone so that everybody in our house knows we mean business. So that God and the devil know that we mean business. Just go clear out some shoes or some clothes or even go lay prostrate down there in the floor, whatever, and just get in our closet physically if we have to to get away and alone and say to God, we mean business, God. We're cutting out everything because we want to hear from you. Bring back silence to our church. Bring back silence, Lord. Some of us, our minds are so busy. They're so, the thoughts are racing. There's never any quiet in our mind. There might be no one in the house. There might be no TV on. We might, there might be no one around, and yet things are so loud in our head. Father, today, you want to bring us to stillness and silence. Now, some of us, I think of Tina, for instance, here, who has little children in her house, and that's a stage in her life that, that won't come again like that. Perhaps, And if during that phase of life, it may be more, she may have to be more intentional about it during a nap time or when her husband helps or whatever. It may have to be more intentional for her to get it. Others of us, it comes, it, it's there for us all the time. We just don't take it because we don't want it or we're afraid of it or we're not used to it or we're in a habit of doing the other. God, call us to silence. Call us to silence. Quieten our hearts. Quieten our minds. Quieten our lives. You said in Isaiah, in quietness and trust is your strength. Sometimes we're weak because we're not quiet. We're always doing the talking. We're always trying to fix it. We're always in charge. We're always telling people what to do. We're always trying to make it right with our words. And God says, be quiet. Be quiet. Walk away from that. Be still for a while. Stand still and see that the salvation of the Lord is here. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Be still and know that I am God 
And quietness and trust is your strength. Oh, that you would keep quiet and that would be your wisdom. God, your spirit is speaking that to us right now in this moment. You're making that applicable to every one of us. Help us, God, to do that. If we're going to read the Bible, if we're going to pray, if we're going to hear from you, we're going to need that silence. It's almost like a prerequisite. We can't hardly get to the other without it. You've been placing it on the hearts of some of our churchmen and women to to lay down or pull back from television or social media or hobbies or whatever. You've been calling different ones to that sort of thing just as you did me back in 18. You've been doing that to me, pulling back and pulling back and pulling back. I've discovered, Lord, the... I haven't seen very many movies that don't watch that much television. I, don't, I, I hardly ever participate in social media. And, and I've discovered, God, that my life is rich without it. I, I, I'm not missing anything. I don't, feel like, I don't feel like I lack anything. And maybe some of them, that's their way to wind down and that's okay. But God, perhaps they can measure it. Perhaps God is calling them to... Maybe on the weekend when they do their hobby when they're not at work or maybe when they're at home and they do the TV thing after work and they're tired. Maybe one night a week you're saying, just go away with me. Just get away with me. Just do a retreat, a spiritual retreat at night for four hours. Don't do any of that other stuff once a week and just be with me. I know you're calling me to that more and more. God, I'm in church work. Sometimes we can get so busy doing God's work, working for God, we're not being with God. Forgive us for that. And remind us of that. Make us quiet. Church, everybody, before we go, think right now about the things in your life, the relationships, the fears, the anxieties, whatever, the things that are loud in your your head. The things that, that, the noise that you're hearing all the time. So maybe that is television, or, but maybe it's actually, maybe it has nothing to do with media at all. Maybe the noise in your head is about the problem in your relationship with your family member or this coworker or your boss or whatever. Think about where that noise is. Locate that right now. Let the Spirit help you in quietness. What is, where is this noise? What is the source of this noise? And practice knowing that. And when you sit down to pray this week and read alone, when you do that, when you make that time, when you carve that time out, think about that again. What is, I'm trying to read, I'm trying to pray, I'm trying to concentrate, I'm trying to focus. And when I do this alone with God or when I do this with my spouse or my friend or whatever, when I sit down to do this, this is the noise that keeps coming up. Write that down. Identify that. We need to pray about that. We need to work on that. We need to look at that. We need to call that out and expose that and confess that and see it so that we can be freed from it. What is the source of the noise in your life? God, I'm worried about paying the bills. God, I'm worried about, I'm worried about my kid. I'm worried about my spouse. I'm worried about my job. I'm worried about my, my neighbor. I'm I'm angry at this person at work. I'm upset at my mom. Whatever it would be, Lord. What, what are those, what's that noise, that, those relational problems and other things that cause us such disquiet? Open that up to us in Jesus' name.